started in Genesis, we're all the way in Daniel. Let's pray before we begin. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you, Lord. Just for this wonderful example of this life, Daniel, a life lived with just integrity. And Lord, I just consider this life a man who refused to compromise. And then I also consider just the the visions that you gave him, the prophetic visions and the insight really into, right into the holy of holies and into heaven itself. And Lord, you do. You speak to your people even as they obey and they follow you and we pray, Father, that you'd reveal your heart to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he is a man who prophesied. He had a ministry of prophesy during the reign of three emperors. Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, and even Cyrus for a very short period of time. And the Jews, at this point in chapter 9, had been exiled for almost 70 years. Daniel had been born in the Jerusalem area. He had been taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army, and had been taken back to Babylon. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came in Jerusalem at a later date, wiped out the city, destroyed it, burned the temple. And so Jerusalem, completely desolate, at this time, there is no temple. One king has passed away. Another has come on the scene. I should say, after, after Nebuchadnezzar came, a couple other folks. One was Belshazzar, and the time of Belshazzar, that's where we saw the writing on the wall, and... Uh, Belshazzar is killed that evening and the Medes take over and we meet Darius the Mede this evening in verse 1. It says, in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, Chaldeans, Chaldeans. In the first year of the of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And so, for those of you who are really, really well-read in your Old Testament, and I hope all of you are or are, will get to that place. 
you may look at verse 1 and say, Ahasuerus, that's Esther's, Esther's husband. How could it be that Darius is his son? And because, because that just, that Ahasuerus, Esther lived at a completely different time. Actually, this is a different Ahasuerus. He's actually mentioned in the Apocrypha, in the book of Tobit. And uh, the Ahasuerus that was, however, that was married to Esther came much, much later. They had some same names, just as they do today. There are many King Georges. There are many King Edwards. There are... uh, many King Louis in, uh, there were in France. So um, uh, this is a different Ahasuerus. And it says that he was reading the book of Jeremiah. Now I find this very interesting whenever you have one writer of the Bible referring to a different one. It's fascinating, for example, in Second Peter where Peter starts talking about Paul and uh, here, Daniel is mentioning Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was quite a bit older than Daniel. He's been dead for a while now. But it says here that Daniel, he, he studied the book of Jeremiah, and he was considering that uh, God would accomplish or that this 70 years would be Fulfilled. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, in Jeremiah, uh, it mentions that in Jeremiah that uh, I'm reading from Jeremiah 25:11. He's prophesying before Jerusalem was destroyed, before Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He said he warned them, "You guys better repent." And since you're not, let me tell you what's going to happen. This whole land, Jeremiah 25 verse 11 shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then in chapter 20 years, uh, rather, chapter 29, verse 10, he says, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good works towards you and cause you to return. And so Daniel, this is now about 70 years after that, uh, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. Interesting that every great man in scripture is always a student of the word of, of God. Every Every man or woman God uses in in a great way is a student of the Word of God. Daniel, no different here. And so he he knows the book of Jeremiah. He knows that the 70 years is almost up. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah has prophesied that they would return to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. Verse 3 Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord God. 
and made confession and said, O Lord God, great and awesome, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandment, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. And, and, and so he's starting to pray here to ask God to make good on his promise. Now, you may ask, well, if God has made a promise, a prophetical utterance, that Israel is going to, the Jews are going to return in 70 years, what's the point of even praying about it? It's going to happen anyway. And the answer is this, God has always, God has called us into communion with him, into fellowship with him. And just as we were in this morning in Isaiah 43, we, he, he created us for himself. And, and look, it, it, it's a mystery. And I cannot reconcile this mystery. On the one hand, there's a promise. On the other hand, God wants us to embrace the promise by prayer. I, I don't really understand that. It's just what the Bible teaches. He didn't create us to just sit back, ignore him, and just remember his promises. <laughs> And so it's a very interesting here that um, he is, he's praying here, okay, God, make good on your promise. And how does he do it? By saying, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. We heeded your servants. We did not heed your, your servants, the prophets. And um, this is what intercession, by the way, is a, a large component of it. You know, I challenge you, if you haven't already done it, do a study of every prayer in the Bible. There is so much to learn from prayer. Now, it makes, it, it seems strange to use the word we because when we haven't even done certain of the things, he's talking on behalf of all the people. But it is an accurate way to pray, to intercede by just praying on behalf of this city. God, we have sinned. We've, we've filled our colleges in the city with, with men and women who hate God, who are uh, teaching as hard and vigorously as they can against the word of God. We've sinned, Lord. That's a, that is a biblical prayer. Even though technically you had nothing to do and you may not even have approved of what these people are doing. It's what Daniel's doing. It is how the Lord has taught us to pray. We should be praying for the churches in the United States of America. Oh God, forgive us. We no longer teach the word of God in this country. We water a town and we, we preach about a sentimental God, but not a God of judgment. It's a valid way to pray, for me to pray, even though by the grace of God, we do preach it in this church. And that's how he is, um, he's, he's, uh, he's praying here. So good to be studying prayer. Uh, little tidbit here, verse three, Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, that's Adonai, 
Uh, this is one of the disadvantages of not reading, of not knowing Hebrew fluently, um, because the words are different. Verse four, Lord, uh, is uh, all caps. That's Jehovah, and it's used seven times. Jehovah, Yahweh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, from this point on, all the times actually, and and it's he begins using. Jehovah, because it was Jehovah's covenant to Israel, a unilateral covenant, an unconditional one that was made to Abraham, that he is basically calling in here. He's calling in the promise that, Lord, you promised us. You've promised us this land. You've promised this relationship. So he starts using the word, the name, the title, Jehovah. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which you have, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned uh, against, you, against you. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, God said, so I sought for a man, one man, singular, among them, who would make a wall, stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Well, there's one now, and his name is Daniel. <laughs> and, and, and he's interceding on behalf of Israel, verse nine, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against you, we, against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yet all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. So verse 10, twice, we, in verse 11, we see, you know, why is all this calamity? Because they didn't obey. Not practically a week doesn't go by uh, where someone uh, is telling me that they, they're telling me, they're having a conversation about falling into some serious sin or serious thing of disobedience and I, I'm telling you practically every week I'm in this conversation where they say words to the effect I, I don't understand what's happening I don't know what I'm going to do to stop doing this and it's such a cop out because the Bible says obey <laughs> it's just obedience that's what it is Obedience, Second Peter chapter 1, God has given us all things we need for a life of godliness. It's just obedience. That's what it is. And, and it's always presented to, to men by God as a free will option. They have the free will, the capability to choose to obey. Verse 12, and he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges, who judged us by bringing us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as to what has been done to Jerusalem. Wow. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. And I've just been in Second Chronicles myself. Well, first let me back up verse 13. He says, as is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. If you know Deuteronomy 28, it's a hard chapter to read. There's about eight verses or something like that of the blessings that will come upon you if you obey. And they're all really fantastic things. But then there's like 35 verses, uh, if not more. Uh, There's, eek, I stand corrected. There's about, it's more like 55 verses about what's going to happen if they disobey. And that's what he's referring to here. Just as it says in the law of Moses, it's happened to us because uh, of our disobedience. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. And I'm in Second Chronicles now. And, and what prayer is he referring to there? Solomon prays to the Lord when the temple is dedicated, when Solomon builds the temple at the building ceremony, he, 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 he's, he says to the Lord, Lord, if we ever, disaster comes upon us and we are taken captive and we're sent away, when we pray to you, have mercy on us. And that's the prayer he's, he's referring to here. And amazingly, it says that the prayer has not been prayed. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous and all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And we've seen that in Luke chapter 19, right? On Sunday morning where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why? He knows that God is a judge. He knows God's going to come in because Jerusalem has rejected the Messiah and he's going to wipe out Jerusalem, which, by the way, is prophesied in this very chapter. So many people's conception of God is, is instead of the big J, it's the big, it's big J, the big judge. It's the big J, the big janitor. And it's not even a good janitor. It's a bad janitor, the kind of janitor that just finds garbage and shoves it underneath somewhere where, the, you know, uh, people can't find it. That's, that's their conception of God. He doesn't judge sin. He sort of tries to, I don't know, like push it out of the way or something. No, he's, he is a judge. And he's saying, in spite of the, the gravity of the disaster, he's saying the Lord God is righteous. Verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned. We've done wickedly. Notice we, we, we. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people are a reproach to all those around us. So in spite of the the gravity of their sin, the extremity of their sin, there's always a place for mercy with God when there's brokenness. And there's people who are turning to him. Now, another set of folks that we counsel from time to time, they just really don't think that they can be forgiven. Now, after what I've done, it just doesn't seem right to pray for forgiveness. But 
God's ways are so far above man's ways, higher than the heaven is above the earth. And he's saying, in spite of how bad it is, he's, he's, let, he's saying, let your anger and your fury be turned away. Verse 17, now therefore, O God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Now, this is interesting. The sanctuary is what? What's that a reference to? The temple. And the temple has been completely destroyed for about, um, at this point, 50 years. 40, 50 years. There is no temple. And he's just by faith saying, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate, which is no more. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and, uh, and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercies. Study this prayer. Study this prayer. What's it say there? It's just like, it could have just as well been out of Hebrews chapter 4 here. Never, ever go to God on the basis of what you've done. Never, ever go to God, even if you've had, like, you've been here hitting spiritual home runs out of the park all week, if there is such a thing. That's not why we go to, to prayer, based upon how good or bad our week is, or day. We go because of his great mercy. We go because of the cross. It says, for we, end of verse 18, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. This is just fantastic prayer language that you and I should adopt here. You notice he's going just, he's just going from confession right to just crying out to God. This, I'm telling you. Study this prayer. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Isn't it interesting that it says the city is called by the name and the city, his name and the city is an absolute shambles. It's, it's, it's basically almost no city. And it, it's also amazing that God's church, even when it's a complete mess, God still calls it his church. It, that's how 1 Corinthians begins, actually, the letter of 1 Corinthians, even though there's open sexual immorality in the church. At their communion service, they're getting drunk. They're going into court and suing one another. <laughs> and he begins the letter saying, you're God's church. Amazing. The, 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 the mercy of the Lord. Guess what happens when we pray like Daniel prays? What happens? What happens? God answers. Verse 20, now while I was speaking, praying and confessing, this is about the answer, <laughs> and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my, uh, of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, this is the second time he showed up in, in, uh, in the book of Daniel, same who announced the birth of Jesus, same angel, whom I had seen in the vision in the beginning, 
began to fly swiftly. He reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, for, for those of you who really want to go really, really deep, I'll send you on your way with this little tidbit. That word swiftly, actually the little translation is wearily. And so all of these Bible commentators argue with one another about what is, does that mean? And so putting it all together, it's, they just really, it, it's sort of like the, the idea is, is that he was weary, which is an indication of how swift he was. And people say, well, how can angels be weary? Aren't they ministering spirits? Like, I, don't even, I don't know. Go, go figure that out yourself. But, but uh, it, it, it's an interesting uh, express, expression here. Being caused to fly swiftly reached me about the same time of the evening, evening offering. So the evening offering... So he's, he's uh, remembering the evening offering, this, the time of the evening offering, which is an interesting thing. So Daniel's saying the angel uh, Gabriel came to him while he was in prayer during the evening offering. Now, again, the evening offering, there had been no evening offering for 40 or 50 years. Why? The temple was destroyed. The Jews have the same problem today, by the way. They don't have a temple to make sacrifice for atonement of sin today. And it, and it had been destroyed. And the really cool thing about it is, is Daniel is taken away from Jerusalem probably somewhere between 10 and 14 years old and that made such a burning impression on his heart. The evening offering. That's why we teach children, put a large emphasis on teaching children around here because this stuff doesn't go away from their mind and their memory. He's almost 90 years old now. He's remembering that evening offering, the time of it that it happened. 65 years, no, no uh, something like uh, 75 years earlier. He's still praying during the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to, you, to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Daniel is called greatly beloved. Chapter 10, verse 11, same. It's also called greatly beloved there. Chapter 10, verse 19, also called greatly beloved. Now, the, uh, some translations say precious, others say desirable. You're greatly desired. Song of Solomon says you're greatly desired by the Lord. And you ask, well, is he more greatly beloved than me? Well, it's impossible because once you're washed with the blood of Jesus, we're all, God can't love us anymore. In fact, in John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying to the Lord, he prays for God to love them with the same love 
that the God loves Jesus. That's weird to us, that God would love us in the same degree that he loves Jesus. But that's what the Bible says. But he's nevertheless, Daniel here, is call, he's called the greatly beloved. He says, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So this is a vision, this is a prophecy that is given to Daniel and there is, these next three verses, four verses are considered the backbone of all prophecy in the Bible. They are so central to, to, to prophecy and understanding biblical prophecy he is, he's giving him a vision now, a prophecy which really uh, covers from this point on until Jesus' return. And I put this up on the projection a few times on Sunday morning, a couple times on Sunday morning the last few weeks because it, it basically, Luke chapter 19, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then weeps because the city is going to be destroyed, it's all about what happens, what is predicted to happen in this prophecy. And... Uh, I can't possibly overemphasize how much writing has been done about these four verses. It's, uh, you could spend the next three years (laughs) uh, writing about this. And I can't tell you also how much uh, people who don't believe in the Bible, you know, the way they've tried to attack these verses And the reason they do is because these verses predict the very day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And obviously if someone were to concede that 500 years before Jesus came, it was predicted the day would come into Palm Sunday, obviously that means they're a God and this Bible is written by God and then they they need to obey this word here. And so, um, man, I've... I've read all the arguments and the most I I can tell you by the people who are unbelievers, people who don't believe in the word of God, what they say about these uh, verses, you're free to go look at the same thing yourself but the most I can tell you is I read it and I think to myself, you're really going to argue that? Really? (laughs) It wouldn't be very nice if I laughed in front of their face but... um, you know, it's 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 an amazing prophecy, and it ha it it has to do specifically with, you know, remember Daniel's a Jew, and this he's he's weeping and he's tormented in his soul about what's happened to the Jews, and he's asking to be God make good on your promise, send us back to Jerusalem. And he's just seeking the Lord. And the Lord is basically what is going on. He says, not only can I send you back to Jerusalem, as I promised, I'm going to also tell you what's going to happen to the Jews for the remainder of history. 
God always gives us more than we ask or imagine, right? And so this is it. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, um, a couple things there. When he says for your people, so this prophecy is about the Jews. And for your holy city, this prophecy is about Jerusalem. And that's important. There are some people who believe that once Jesus rose from the dead, there is no further role for Israel. I just don't know how they can get over even this one verse, much less so much else in the Bible where the Lord makes it clear, yes, Israel is going to have a role, particularly just prior to my return. The Bible's really clear about that. Seventy weeks are determined. The word weeks, it's a Hebrew expression. It's not, the actual translation is seven. Seventy-sevens are determined. The word seven was either used for a period of seven days or seven years when Jacob had accomplished his seven years waiting for Rachel. I believe it was Rachel, not Leah. It is said of that waiting period that he accomplished his week, his seven in Hebrew. When the Pentecost is, is I mean, rather, the Jubilee is referred to in uh, the book of, is that Deuteronomy, where after 49, after, after 50 years, all your debts are released and slaves were released. Just it's the year of Jubilee. It says after a seven Sabbaths of years. So it's a Hebrew expression for seven days or seven weeks. There's a couple of reasons we know with very you know, very confidently we can say this is talking about 70 sets of seven years and not 70 sets of seven days is that at another time in the book of Daniel, it uses, it's, it, it uses the expression weeks of days. And a few chapters from now, Daniel says in three weeks of days, blah, 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 isn't used here. And, 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 and the other there's a number of other reasons why we know this is talking about weeks of years and not weeks of days is that um, really it, 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 the verse wouldn't really make any sense that um, 70 weeks of days, meaning uh, 70 times seven days, uh, that's a short period of time for all this in verse 24 to happen. Uh, you know, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to bring an error. And, and, and plus, nothing happened. It's something like, I, I don't remember, it's like a 70 weeks of days is something like, I don't know, a thousand days. One of you math guys can figure it out. But, but really, there's no no real disagreement, even people who don't believe in the Bible at all and think Bible, the Bible is just a, a, a bunch of books about, of fables, agree that this is talking of 77s of years, 77-year periods, which is 490 years, which is the other reason we know it's talking about years, because 490 years is a significant number in the Bible. Do you remember what it is? 
for 490 years. Why did Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, why did Jeremiah say that the exile away from the land would be for 70 years? You remember? That's very good. The number of Sabbath years they missed. In the, in, the, in the book of the law, in the Pentateuch, it said that the Jews were supposed to rest their land one year out of every seven years. And they never obeyed that law, not even once in 490 years. There's 490 years from the time they came out, from the time of the Exodus into the promised land, up into the time that Jerusalem was destroyed, 490 years. So God says, okay, you don't want to obey this law? I'll give the land rest. We're going to move all you out to Babylon, and we're going to give 70 years of rest. So 490 is a a significant uh, uh, number. So 490 years in the past is where they didn't uh, obey. And, but this is a different 490 years. This 490 years is going to the future. 77s or 490 years will happen for your people in the holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, 490 years, there's going to be a 490-year period where all of this is going to take place to finish the transgression, meaning the, 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 the sin will be paid for, to make an end of sin. Some translations say to make an end of sin offerings, to make reconciliation uh, for iniquity. <clears throat> the Bible says there must be reconciliation. There must be payment for iniquity. Uh, in Exodus chapter 34, God has mercy uh, for a thousand generations, but he, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. There must be reconciliation. And then also to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy. So there is disagreement as to what some of these verses mean, but for the most part, Biblical scholars who believe in the, in the Bible believe that the reference to finishing the transgression and to make an end of sin or sin offerings it's, and to make reconciliation for iniquity is a reference to the cross. To make an end of sin offerings, to pay for iniquity. To seal up vision and prophecy. Someone just asked me, uh, I'm sure you guys have been asked this question. You've probably asked this question yourself. Why is it that the canon, the Bible, was closed? You know, with the book of Revelation, why, why is that? Well, there's a number of answers for that, and they're good ones, and I'm not going to get into all of them, but interestingly, right here is because we're told in the Bible, <laughs> Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, to seal up the vision and prophecy, meaning there will be no more need for a, prof- a, a prophetical judgment, a, pro- a, a, prophet- a prophetical utterance and a vision to be put into the Bible. The Bible will be sealed. 
during this 400, during, during this period. And to anoint the most holy. Some of your translations say the most holy place. So there's, there's, there's folks who think that this is either a reference to Jesus when he is anointed, when he comes to establish his kingdom, or for those who think the proper translation is to anoint the most holy place. Remember the last 10 chapters of Ezekiel? Ooh, that was a painful evening. We did all 10 chapters. It's all about the temple and the millennial kingdom. And they think this is a reference to when that temple, that most holy place, uh, is anointed. But there's going to be um, 490 years, or a better real way of saying it is 70 sets of 70 uh, seven years, 70 sets of seven years. And so he starts to break it down further in verse 25. Excuse me for a second. Verse 25 says, know therefore and understand. So he start, he's going to get more detailed. It's like 70 sets of 70 years. Okay, 490 years. Uh, can you break that down a little bit more for us? Well, yes. Here's verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 483, which would be 483 years. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So uh, we know that Jerusalem was rebuilt after this time. First, uh, the Jews came back from Babylon to start on the temple, but then uh, where Cyrus... Uh, the Persian, the emperor, gave them permission to do that. And then Artaxerxes actually gave them permission to rebuild the city. Now, some people have gotten confused because they try to use the date from Cyrus here as the date that the command went forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So here's the deal. the beginning of the ticking of the 490-year clock is when the command goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem. It says after the 62 weeks, in other words, first there'll be a, a period, a seven seven-year periods, 49 years, and then there's going to be a 62-week period. It says, after the 62-week period, Messiah shall be cut off. So, first Messiah is going to come after 483 years. But then, verse 26, he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. So, we know Jesus didn't die for himself because Jesus didn't sin. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. 
And then it says the people of the prince who is to come shall come in to destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD, about 37 years after Jesus was killed. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. So when Jesus went into Jerusalem on that day, he knew it was his day. He knew it was the day marked out in Daniel. And, 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 and this is what he says in Luke 19. He's speaking to the city of Jerusalem, weeping over it, and he's saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the day of what? The day that the Messiah, the prince, would come in. He's referring to the book of Daniel. But now it is hidden from your eyes, and the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Anyone do their homework with Josephus? Okay. So did you raise your hand last Sunday morning? No, you didn't. It is truly amazing to read uh, a third-party account of what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD. It, 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 it's, it, it's exactly what is described in verse 43 and 44. They made an embankment around the city, a wall, prohibited people from going in and out, and then they just leveled the city. And Josephus says that, you know, his parting last words were, except for three towers, you wouldn't even know anyone ever lived there in Jerusalem. That is a reference to verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. Verse 26. Then in verse 27, it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, what on earth is this talking about? But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, I just, I just, I, I, I want to talk about a few things. I, I've made this rather, what, if you've never heard it for the first time, this rather astonishing uh, this rather astonishing assertion that if you if you if you count 483 years from the time the commandment went out exactly it will go to the exact day Jesus came in on Palm Sunday that sounds hokey it just sounds so ridiculous but let me tell you how um, that particular date uh, it is arrived at. Now, many people have have made have tried to have made 
this calculation and they would come within three or four years of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Uh, usually it was after he died and they're like, well, it was good enough. It's close enough for me. And they're okay with it, which is understandable. I mean, I am okay with it if it's that. But it, but, but it doesn't even have to be three years after his crucifixion, that the, that the 483 years. And the key to it is the years used are 360-day years. And you may say, well, that, well, what's up with that? Is that just arbitrary or what? I mean, he's just some guy. It actually, Sir, Sir Robert Anderson, I think his name is, 19th century, actually, actually wrote a book on this. And he is the one that originally researched it, and I really think he hits it on the mark. He used 360-day years for, for two reasons. One, well, he calls them prophetical years. And, and, and many, many people have embraced this theory, and I think he's right on. And the reason is is because in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, and in Daniel, remember Daniel? We've already read about in Daniel chapter uh, 3, or Daniel chapter 7, where it talks about during the time of tribulation, there'll be a year, a time, a time, a time and a half, which means three and a half years. There's a cross reference to that three and a half year period in the book of Revelation of uh, 42 months, and it actually states the number of days in Revelation of what 42 months is. In Revelation chapter 12, it says specifically in Revelation 12, 6, 42 months is 1,203 score, meaning uh, 60 days. 1,260 days. And if you figure that out, he is using, indeed, 360-day years. He's using 30-day months or 360-day years. Also, interestingly enough, in the book of Genesis where the flood is recorded. And I'm taking this from the book that I've been referring to, Daniel Prophecy of 70 Weeks. It's interesting in Daniel chapter 7 and, uh, and Daniel chapter 8 where they're, it's talking about the length of the flood, a period of exactly five months. It lists the dates there exactly and for whatever reason they use 30-day months or, or, or three, uh, a 360-day type of, uh, of year. And so uh, a prophetic year is, is the idea there. So if you use prophetic years and you use uh, the 283, which is mentioned here, the amount of week, again, it's 100, 173,880 days. You go from March 14th, 445 BC, when Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem, not the temple, but the city. And you go forward and you come to April 6th, 32 AD. That's amazing. That is truly uh, uh, amazing there. So uh, a couple other observations here. It's can we put up the uh, can we put up the uh, first image here? I'm gonna. It's not the dan That's not an image. It's a timeline. So 
the next difficulty that biblical interpreters come with, I know you gave me the, the beam thing, but no, I don't know where it is. Did you give me that? Maybe you didn't. Did you give me that? Yes? No? No, the other one. I'm sorry. The, 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 uh, the Daniel 70 weeks one. So in verse, and I'm going to try to wrap this up in five or ten minutes. We're going to go a little over time tonight. If you take, thank you very much. If you take, there's 70 weeks. After 69 weeks, the Messiah is going to come, which leaves one week after that to complete the 70 weeks. Now, the confusing thing is this last week, it says this last period of seven years, it says that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Uh, The problem with that is if you put the week directly after this 69 weeks, it comes, the period of seven years comes to somewhere early in the book of Acts and really nothing is going on there. Nothing happens in that period. Uh, there's the, it, it's the time where the Antichrist uh, rises up and he makes a peace treaty with Israel and nothing happens at that time, 39 AD or 40 AD. That's at the beginning of the the book of Acts. Now, there are many who insist that this is a continuous 70 weeks. And I think they have a lot of difficulty with that, what that this final week, what verse 27 uh, really means. But what many others, including myself, believe the correct way to interpret it is that there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week. And that gap is what we'll call the church age. And again, it's the type of thing when you first hear it, you go, you're kidding me. You're you're really going to try to convince me that there's going to be a 1900-year gap here, a 2000-year gap? But if you really go through the, the teaching and the facts, it really does make sense. The 70-year period is a period known as Jacob's trouble, a, a, a time of tribulation uh, um, of the nation of Israel. And at the beginning of that period, the Antichrist, we've already read about him, is going to rise up and make a seven-year peace treaty. In the middle of it, he's going to ba- uh, break the, the treaty, and there's going to be a time of terrible suffering for the, uh, for the Jewish people, such as really has, has, has never been uh, known. Clearly hasn't um, happen- happened yet. The the strength of the argument is that there's often a gap in Scripture 
between prophecies in the Old Testament. One example is one you're very familiar with. It's in the book of Isaiah where it says, unto us a child is born. And then there's just a comma, and then it says that he will become a king and he will reign forever. Clearly, a 2,000-year difference, and there's just a comma. And so, and that's, there's, there's actually several examples of that. And, and indeed, I've been, as I've talked, you know, throughout the, throughout the Old Testament, we've seen this over and over again, that the prophets themselves didn't necessarily see the difference between the near-term fulfillment and the far-term fulfillment. Um, and, and so, again, by this prophetical interpretation, there's a long gap between this period and the period where, again, this whole prophecy is about the Jews. And um, the Jews really went off the scene for 2,000 years. So it, it actually makes a logical sense that it would there would be a gap. Another strong argument that there is a gap between these two periods here and here is that verse 26 says that during these 490 years, it says that the city and the sanctuary is going to be destroyed. But that didn't happen to 70 AD. So there couldn't have been a continuous week of... The 70th week couldn't have started right after Jesus died, that last seven-year period, because the last seven-year period under that interpretation would be something like 40 AD, but, but the, the city wasn't destroyed till 30 years later. Is everyone following me on that? So, so it's, it, it seems obvious that it couldn't have been... A, the final s- seven years couldn't have started right after the 69 the, uh, the 483 years, the 69 weeks. And so, verse 27, you, and by the way, I didn't even talk about this. This is kind of interesting. This, this particular interpreter here, you know how it's 70 weeks plus 62 weeks. They, you know, people try to say, well, what did this 70 weeks mean? It must have had some meaning. They're calling it the close of the Old Testament or book of Malachi. Uh, which is interesting. I don't know, you know, whether that's uh, whether that's what that period signifies. That's uh, that that forty-nine year period. But uh, it's an interesting thought. Certainly, if Daniel or if Gabriel separates the sixty-two weeks from the seven weeks, one would think that there's some meaning to that as well. And that's an interesting um, theory here. So. Let me just wrap this up by saying this, this prophecy here, and we could, you know, we could go on for three weeks, you know, discussing these four verses, and I just encourage you to get this book, look, at, look into this yourself. But this prophecy, it begins with saying there's 70 weeks in verse 24 for your people and your, and your holy city. In other words, there are these 70-week that there's these 70 period, 77 year periods which God is going to be dealing with your period. The very last week, the very last seven year period will be the final period 
And it's that week, that seven-year week, that seven-year tribulation period that is described in the book of Revelation. It's called Jacob's Trouble, I believe, in Jeremiah. That is referred to um, in verse 27, where at the beginning, the Antichrist, uh, who we saw in an earlier chapter chapter in Daniel, is going to make a peace treaty with Israel for... uh, uh, seven years and by the way it's believed that it's because that of the power of the Antichrist that Israel is going to have the political clout to build on the Temple of the Mount where there's currently a Muslim mosque <laughs> you know how else could that happen except for an enormous amount of uh, political clout but at the in the middle he's going to break the treaty and then it says and he shall Uh, bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. This, verse 27, Jesus refers to in Matthew 24 where he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which means the Antichrist is going to go into the temple himself and be worshipped, that's when things get really nasty for the Jewish people. And that period, um, the, the, actually the first three and a half period, the first 42 months and the latter 42 months, both described in the book of Revelation. Incredible that the Lord maps this all out for us and not doing it justice in just one message here. I uh, just really encourage you to uh, go into it yourself, but what an encouragement just to read about uh, these, these verses that Jesus knew so well, just about his, his own arrival, his own death, and but then also his return. And just as certain as the prophecy correctly predicted is coming into Jerusalem, we can be assured that it correctly predicts his return. Okay, well, we uh, finish up Sunday nights and we only have about 15 minutes here praying on Sunday nights. And uh, we, if I could just, whoever is doing worship, is that Greg or Danielle or both? We just have, we close in, in prayer on, on Sunday nights and, and we pray for one of the ministries we support. But we just also use the scripture that we studied as a springboard for prayer. So we're going to do that this evening. The way we do it, we just break up into little groups of four and five people. If you need to leave now, the usher's in the back with the parking tokens. But we'll be about... 15 more minutes, uh, and we're going to pray in these groups. So I will, I'm going to lead this prayer, and I will be up here. I will return to you in about two minutes. Until then, why don't you just uh, gather into groups, and, and we can close out the night in prayer.